Hello and welcome to FinTech Impact. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Sheldon Bro, founder of Pocket Finance. Pocket Finance is an, as a platform for greater collaboration between clients and advisors, giving them a personal financial management app on their phone that not only helps them track their wealth, but also educate them, communicate with their advisor, and achieve better financial outcomes. And with that, here's my interview with Sheldon. Sheldon, thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me on, Jason. Big fan of the podcast. Well, you better be. And what I mean by that is, full disclosure, I am and have been since the beginning of the company, more or less, a advisor to Sheldon and Pocket Finance, so conflict of interest disclosure, but before we get started. So this is why I say he better be a fan, because he better listen to everything I've told him. <laughs> and if I want to be sharp in the financial industry, then I need to pay attention to the podcast and to Michael Kitsis, I suppose. Well, Michael's name gets dropped enough on this podcast. <laughs> Never gets dropped enough. Anyway, so moving on. So let's get started. So first off, Sheldon, tell us about Pocket Finance. Uh, well, so Pocket Finance is a, is a dual interface fintech platform. It's got the personal finance management tool for the consumers to help them safely and successfully navigate finance and an advisor portal to make sure they're optimizing ongoing engagement uh, in that client advisor relationship. And we're really focused on three pillars. First, streamlining that data at the press of a button because we know that typically it's easier to convince a client to shovel dog poop for a half hour than to have them gather financial data. Identifying and capitalizing on those financial opportunities as they arise because financial advisors are not typically certified with JoJo Psychic Alliance and clients uh, don't have always stellar financial literacy, so they don't know the right times always to engage. And really just offering that tool outside of those strategic planning meetings to bring daily relevance into financial planning and deepen that ongoing awareness and guidance for clients. Okay, so that's a, you gave me a, three things to unpack there later. But before we do, let's talk about the origin of Pocket Finance. What inspired you to get this company off the ground? Well, I'm going to give you that in two pieces, if I may. One is the consumer side and one is on the advisor side. So I got about 15 years in, in finance, 10 years in big banks. I'm the first kind of reject banker in the fisherman's family. And I, my first job in the bank, as many people are, usually they'll either start in the branch or they'll start in the, start in the call center. And I was getting 50 to 80 calls a day. I've seen more than you know, 100,000 clients call in and, and spoken to them and see their financial profile. And in that short period of time, they always expect you at the bank to you know, look at and try to have a meaningful conversation with the, with the client. And I, in my first year in banking, I had a 93-year-old woman call in. And as we get that call often at the end of the month, and she was just seeing if her pension was in yet because she's on a fixed income, as many pensioners are. And after I answered that question, I had been scrolling through her credit card transactions of her $33,000 balance. And as far as I could scroll back, I could see she was making a minimum payment. And I just stopped scrolling because it's a lot of scrolling. I said, how long have you been making the minimum payment on this credit card? And she said about six or seven years. Now, I grew up with my grandmother. I remember distinctly, and even every time I tell this story, to be honest, that that drop feeling in my stomach that kind of you know had me like, well, how could this ever happen? A consumer doesn't have the financial literacy to know that she can easily change this into a loan or a line of credit because she's always making her payments on time to drop that interest rate in half. Her family members either don't know or they know, but again, still don't have that level of financial literacy to know that there's an easy product change there. A lot of people don't know those simple things. And the bank has not proactively reached out to her. They wait until she calls in and hopefully get someone that will make that aware to her. And in my mind at that time, I'm thinking this is a simple, not even an algorithm because that's a, you know, a fancy word. It's, it's a simple formula. If user has an average balance of 10,000 or more for six months or longer that they're making the minimum payment or a low payment, you populate a notification that says you might want to change this to a different product to drop the interest rate in half to pay it off a lot sooner. So that was the consumer side. And I started to continually notice these things that banks 
didn't and I perceived never would offer because it's highly profitable. Where's the incentive? Where is the incentive? They That's love the they would love for your grandmother to pay that off until until her end days. Look, I look, I mean, I've more than once made the comment on other podcasts as well, is that you know, think that the bank is your friend is wrong. The bank is a drug dealer and their drug is 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 debt. And you ask a drug dealer how much you should consume, not that I do drugs or I condone it, but the answer is simple as much as humanly possible without dying, dying being bankruptcy. So that's how they maximize profit. I'm going to steal that analogy, and it is a concerningly accurate analogy. And we all remember in the last, I think, you know, my perception of time as an entrepreneur is a bit diluted now, as, as you've mentioned in previous uh, conversations, you know, entrepreneurship is the most bipolarizing thing you can do for yourself. But the problem really is that the high pressure sales uh, that they have in there, it's, it's constant product dumping and doesn't always mean that it's a, it's a meaningful product for the client. So that's the consumer side. And on the advisor side, I used to have a role at one of the big banks. Embarrassingly, I was kind of one of the number one creditor insurance sales for a while, which it's better than nothing. And I sold it in probably the most ethical way of anyone in the banking system. But when I moved over to another institution where we catered to financial advisors for lending, I fell in love with what independent advisors do. I realized that buying creditor insurance is like getting a sandwich inside the airport. And I started to, I, I left the institution. I started my own mortgage advisory firm after working in many departments in the bank. And I decided, let me cater directly to these independent financial advisors. I love what they're doing. I'd love to collaborate with them. And I know that they'd like to be able to collaborate with someone that's going to help them truly wrap their arms around their client as opposed to sending their clients for these day-to-day products or basic lending products where they're going to get product dumped or have somebody that's maybe not necessarily well-trained or super ethically focused. So I was dealing with an advisor on the East Coast who sent me a client that was making $450,000 a year. And he had now called the advisor, racked up a bunch of debt in between their you know couple meetings per year. And he had about $60,000 in a credit card, $40,000 in a line of credit, a couple fancy car loans. And he asked for me to restructure the debt. And he even went as far as to ask me to uh, you know maybe look at uh, a little bit of cash flow form, which was an interesting request, but I tried to be above and beyond for those relationships. So I, I did that little budget and a little Excel spreadsheet that I'm sure never got looked at again. And I restructured the debt. And that was an epiphany for me because now he's going to his advisor. He has gotten completely out of control with his spending. You should not be able to get up to 60,000 in credit card debt before you're having a conversation with an advisor, I would think. Talk to my buddy, Scott Terrio and, uh, and the bankruptcy trustee. <laughs> you've seen a heck of a lot worse. That's for sure. Yeah. And certainly that's true that, you know, the more you make it, the more you spend, but there, there needs to be limits because especially if you're gauging a financial advisor. So this advisor had a million dollars of investments and the client's now calling him not to ask for financial advice, but to say, I need to take out investments. So that was a weird prompt for me. And I'm thinking, okay, I kind of related to that, to the problem of intermittent kind of transactional relationships with clients. Because if I decline somebody for a mortgage, for example, I try to write them this fancy email explaining, monitor your debt ratio, keep it here, do this, do that. That goes into email oblivion. They never read it again. And I thought there needs to be a tool where I can offload this burden of ongoing monitoring and help uh, and have a dynamic tool. And this would be great for advisors as well. And I scoured the earth and the result, you know it better than I do, Jason, because uh, you know you've you've uh, created that great fintech kind of map for uh, all of the products that are available in all the different sectors. There's a lot of noise in the space. There's a lot of tools that are cute little budgeting apps and that are elaborate looking tools. Some with a lot of features, some that look kind of not very attractive, and and there's some beautiful ones as well. And I also realized, you know, I'd like to have one that has a level of connectivity to myself and the professionals that I'm dealing with. So I started kind of working six hours a night after my, my, uh, 
you know, daytime uh, gig and, and drawing out what that would look like. And eventually it kind of came into fruition as the dual interface pocket finance platform. So interestingly enough, and you're you already mentioned Michael at least once. We're going to mention him again. When he was back on in, in episode 100, one of the things that he basically, I asked him, like, what's the biggest hole or gap you see? And he said, one of the biggest surprises he saw was that no one had developed mint.com for financial advisors. And that largely is still true. And in a lot of ways, when I start explaining what you are, that is one of the first pieces I did. So basically, like, let's talk about that's that speaks to the PFM piece and the data piece. So let's talk about the three things you talked about, and that will explain the comment I just made. But so you talked about data. Talk to me about the importance of data within the financial conversation and how it is you enable that. So I'll start by saying that that article in a, and he's wrote, written a few around that aggregation piece, but he has one that he wrote in 2013 mm, called the different when layers will, of when will there be a good PFM for advisors? And I now in my enterprise and my investor meetings and many meetings I have with people, I say, one of the most important financial minds in North America has been writing about this since the early 2000s. And I send them that article because I think it's a, it's a great resource. I've sent it to, to many, uh, many different relationships that we're trying to garner. And you've shared with me the, um, the uh, precept of, you know, data is greater than lore. Behind me I, right now, I got it right there. It says, it's right here. Data is greater than opinion, right? Well, well, data is great. Uh, trust data, not lore is my t-shirt based on Star Trek, but yes, absolutely. So really, I think we're both believers in there's not really any, and if there is, it's very, very little blanket financial advice that you can give people. It's, it's hyper-specific. We're moving into an era where there, there is hyper-personalization and it's more important than, than anything. I mean, it's cool that I can talk about tacos and then Facebook populates, you know, three fancy kind of cheeses I can buy, but I'd really rather have that more meaningful data enrichment within finance, which is, you know, the number one stress that exists over every other stress, according to, you know, many different reports you can read out there. So being able to aggregate the data is one thing. Any company can set up and aggregate uh, data pretty quickly through all of these different conduits that exist, you know, Flinks, Plaid, Yodely, MX, there's, there's a lot of them out there, but then what are you able to do with that data in a meaningful way? And then how are you engaging the different relationships that there needs to be uh, in that conversation and, and, and enhance that collaborative advice so that there's not advice being given to our clients in silos. Imagine the pain of communicating something to your client. They're trying to understand all of it, and then they need to get now go and communicate it with another one of their financial professionals that you're not directly connected with if they haven't necessarily engaged one of your recommended trusted ecosystem partners. So, you know, the data collection pain point of gathering it Nobody wants to chase it. You might find this hard to believe, but nobody deals with you, Jason, because of your dazzling administrative and data entry and, and information chasing skills. And clients, even myself, and it's really, it's proof in the pudding, but it's also disgraceful for me to, to admit that as an innovator in this space and somebody that doesn't enjoy chasing it, just a couple months ago, my partner and I were applying for a credit card at TD for our business because we hadn't been running things through on our personal cards for some time. We thought, okay, let's get the company card. We put this girl, poor girl, through five weeks of emailing us every week. And every time we would open up the form that she would send us the reminder, we would see this elaborate two-page PDF with all these tiny fields. And we do what everybody does, which is roll our eyes and say, I'm too busy for this right now. I'll get to it later. And I would literally call my business part at night and say, bro, like we have to like, come on, do it tonight or we're losers. Like let's do it tonight or we're losers. And then we wouldn't do it. And then the next day and the next day passes and we need to get, I mean, we're sending Jeff Bezos to wherever in outer space, but we can't press one button to request and one button to release. And that's what we wanted to be able to bring to the table. 
don't get me started on the open banking piece and uh, you know the entire my dazzling administrative skills this is what believe it or not there are some advisors who believe that the heavy lifting is their value proposition which i think is dead wrong but nevertheless so yeah so bottom line is is that you're you provided a personal financial management app so for those of you not familiar with mint.com ties into all your different banks and investment accounts and all that and puts all the transactions in one place giving you a 360 view now speaking as the financial planner the single biggest obstacle that towards getting financial plans done is data collection. And the number, doesn't matter how much money they make, the number of times people are like, I don't know where it all goes. Like there are those who've got everything budgeted down to the last penny. And then there are those who really have no idea. Those who have no idea outnumber those who don't. So the single biggest obstacle to getting financial plans done is data. And And product applications. Yeah, and product. Well, true. And then I would also say, yeah, absolutely. I would also say that now in the US, this is this bridge has largely been crossed in a lot of ways because data aggregation is, is table stakes in a lot of financial planning softwares. I know my American friends complain about the quality of it all the time. I say try living without it and see how much fun that is. Uh, <laughs> but it's still it's still not commonplace elsewhere in the world. So we all face that obstacle. But uh, so that's the first piece. Okay. So basically you're giving the client and the advisor a 360 view that's updated regularly of their financial situation. Great. Now let's talk about the entire next best action piece. Cause you basically said like, oh, you know, where's notification? Where is the trigger? How do we get people to actually do the right thing? Talk to me about how you're building, working on that piece. Well, again, we talk about, you know, I mentioned the advisors not being psychic and, and what's the frequency. And I had a meeting with an advisor earlier today. He was like, well, yeah, you know, I, I, I even have levels of engagement where I send out a monthly newsletter and that triggers them to rem- kind of remember me. And, and then mm. they're like, oh, I meant to talk to you about it. And then clients, the average score of uh, financial literacy in a G20 countries is 48% out of 100. And the only thing that makes that worse is that we're really cocky about our financial literacy and we want to do it ourselves. And we think we can kind of navigate all this complex advice and tax strategies on our own sometimes. It's really being able to capture those opportunities proactively rather than reactively. Do you want to have a conversation 60 days after your client freed up $500 in cash flow from paying off a loan where they've already kind of sat down with their wife and decided they're going to buy a new jet ski or that you want to be able to have a conversation 60 days in advance to purposely allocate those funds before they go into spending oblivion or at least a portion of those funds. So capturing all those little things, even creditor insurance on a credit card for independent advisors is a, is a meaningful uh, you know, quick conversation. And, and we Absolutely. prompted on both sides so that the advisor and the client's getting the prompt and we're not relying just on one of those uh, parties to to make sure that the engagement happens. Excellent. So bottom line is, is that you're 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 nudging me in the direction of things I should be doing for my client by giving because you have access to that data. And you know it's funny you mentioned that because you know any Canadian working in a major Canadian bank that who, who deals with the Canadian bank that basically has received a large lump sum of money knows that they jump on you like white on rice. So trying to invest that money, even if it's only there for a day. The reality is, is that if you're an advisor and you're not working at the branch, you don't have that advantage. Whereas this type of system would definitely give you that kind of advantage to be proactive and and know when these things happen. Yeah. And even if you have, like I say, an assistant or something, I mean, even they can have a higher, better use and they can be filtering through those opportunities that we highlight to see, well, which ones are the ones that really they want to put in front of you. And there's a lot of opportunities that are going to continue to get programmed in. And we want our notifications not just to be a notification in front of your eyes. We want it to be clickable and actionable for that next best actionable call. So talk to me then about the the last piece, the daily reminders, the basically like, how do you building deeper engagement between client and advisor? Well, you know, it's interesting. The deeper engagement, there's a lot of interesting psychology and studies around it. Imagine if you could wear a certain color shirt that when you leave the house, everyone 
sees you as 170% more handsome and intelligent. Or even if you don't leave the house and your wife sees you in that shirt and she thinks that you did 170% more house chores than you actually did. You'd probably wear that shirt on a semi-regular basis, right? I would wear that shirt on a daily basis. Could continue. Exactly. So, Especially the latter one. The former one bothers me less. Yeah. And even those simple things like a lot of advisors using, like Advisor Stream that are sharing out insights into the industry that's showing that you are kind of staying apprised to uh, certain things that are happening that are reminding, keeping you front of mind. It's a big difference. And and when you get into, again, those more hyper-personalized ones, uh, it makes a huge difference to clients. And there's, uh, again, a lot of studies that there's a huge impact. They're way more retention, way more confidence in referring their friends and family. And that engagement piece is where really where everything is moving. I mean, you talk about robo-advisors, you got to do something that algorithms can't do. So what are you, and you got to be able to free up your time in order to focus on those things. So we're really trying to optimize that engagement in the right ways. And um, just make sure that, and if, if you look at, it's not just legacy firms that need to innovate around data, but even, you know, companies have to really think far, far ahead futuristically. Otherwise we're creating something that has a shelf life. So that, that human piece, I think is always going to have its place, but it's freeing up that time and offloading those low value add tasks onto technology. And, and technology doesn't need to be scary to, to adapt and increase that engagement. And, and you can automate and personalize some of it still very easily. Okay. The bottom line is, and this is where I basically kind of sum up the value. Almost everything that matters to us in the modern day, especially digitally, lives as an icon on my phone. I use that line that you've given me in one of our conversations regularly and now in every meeting. Except for the financial advisor, who does not. What I'm I'm optimistic about what you're doing is, is that not only will you hopefully help with data acquisition, and you'll put me on their phone in a permanent way, which will allow me to communicate and collaborate with them in a more meaningful way as opposed to just them sending me iMessage or a messages to any one of the nine chat apps that I have sitting in one folder that identifies where the folders tells me if there's anything, anything that's come up. So, so yeah, so I think that is an incredibly valuable piece of real estate that you were giving us and actioning it quite well. So before we wrap up, there's three blue sky questions that I asked that uh, basically to make you think on a positive note. And given that you listen to all my episodes, apparently you I should say, oh, I'm on my way. I'm okay, on the man. challenge. All right. Fair enough. So the first one is if you had one wish for something could change in your company, the industry as a whole, what would it be? In the industry as a whole, because that one's so much easier to, there's so many things that they need to be changed is opportunities to collaborate on advice. I, as a mortgage advisor, have had a client in British Columbia that dealt both with a broker and then with their bank and got an interest rate that I didn't necessarily see fit. And they had a complex situation, as many people start to as they get more going on in their lives. And he had a trust where he made a pit stop and a holding company. And you know, notes are king when you're submitting for insurance, if you're going to court, if you're submitting a, a mortgage document for approval. Collaborative advice, giving advice in silos is confusing for the client and it's not yes necessarily going to yield the best outcome for clients. So we also have that collaboration within that advisory hub at Pocket Finance, where you're able to recommend people that are trusted in your ecosystem, even see people outside of your ecosystem, your clients using who's on their team. And we need to have the more collaborative advice. When I reached out to that client and said, I think I can do better. I'm going to break this mortgage contract because it was a variable of only three months interest. I reached out to his accountant. I reached out to his financial advisor. I asked for them to give me some insight as to why it was 
why he had, you know, stopping in a family trust and this and that. They sent me back amazing notes. They were super collaborative. They were awesome to deal with. I was able to send in notes that was able to send, save him $70,000 in interest over the next five years. And now he can go and put that into his financial plan with his advisor. I mean, it's, it's a win for all stakeholders. So collaborative advice is what I'd like to see happening a lot more in the industry. And even though a lot of more of us want to be able to do it, making it easy through technology for us to collaborate again. And I'll throw a little plug in here for side drawer that uh, they're also uh, focusing on that type of collaboration as well. Full disclosure, um, side drawer is yet another company that I advise uh, and I'm the advisory board of. And that one was also a previous guest of the podcast way back in episode 115. So uh, that was the push. And I agree with you. Collaboration is key. And frankly, Unfortunately, you know, everybody's typically incentivized for working in their silo, not necessarily working with others in other silos, but that's not how you get optimal outcomes. So anything that can grease the wheels on that is greatly valuable. Second question, what is the biggest challenge that you face to date in getting pocket finance to where it is and how did you overcome it? All of the noise, and I was just talking about this today, all of the noise in the startup world. So there is so much... all kinds of different polarizing advice and everybody wants you to be coachable, but you can't take all the advice at once. But more importantly than that, there's a million different incubators. There's a million different people trying to get their hands in a million different pots where they're not necessarily always in it for the right reasons. I'm a purpose-driven entrepreneur. Of course, I want to do wonderful things for you know my stakeholders on the business side, the investors, the advisors uh, like yourself, but I'm purpose-driven in what I'm able to leave for my daughter to safely and successfully navigate finance, what I'm able to leave to the people that are going to uh, champion the next generation of financial advice in the generational wealth transfer of tens of trillions of dollars to the younger generations. So really all of the noise, and there's not really just a very simplified journey of even just starting in a very simple place because you know entrepreneurs, as Elon Musk has continued to show us, can really change the world and giving them their best foot forward in order to be able to do that without a lot of the distractions and confusion and I guess bad actors that there can be in the space that are just there to make a quick buck. Oh, but I would say, sorry, even more than that, open banking in Canada, let's pull it together. Like we're living in the stone age. It's it's bizarre. It's true. No, it's not bizarre. It's all about incentives and players and who's in charge of this country. And it's, uh, yeah, don't get me started. I've had my rant. So there was a three-part series for those of you who missed it. Sorry, five-part series for those of you who missed at the beginning of 2021 on this. And uh, it was also the most depressing series I ever did. So, um, yeah. What was that one that I sent you the screenshot of? Because that was a really good one because it was more recent and it still didn't seem like... No, it wasn't. It was the same thing. Uh, Let's see here. So, Open Banking episode one. It was Jesse Wakoho, the CEO of EQ and the gentleman with portage i believe that was episode three of the open banking series so episode one was 159 so it went from 159 to 162 all of them more depressing than the other so yeah no kidding on the open banking piece no kidding on the on the entire noise around the startup world everybody's got an opinion everybody thinks they're an expert and there's a reason why so many go sideways so last question for you is what excites you the most about what it is you're working on and keeps you getting out of bed every morning to keep on fighting a good fight? So I read a lot online about, you know, the different kind of startup founders are like going through like all these kind of, I'm fortunate that like I, every single morning I haven't had really, I've had a lot of interesting and, and tough times for the journey, but I've never woken up and been like, man, is this the right choice? I'm not really feeling motivated. I wake up with fire under my rear every day. And not just because I have a lot of great people around me, but just being able to know that I'm going to be able to leave something for the people that I care about. And I often think of, again, my daughter, that I'm the bulldog banker for a lot of friends and family where I will, my mother came to, to visit my daughter at 62 years old. I find out 
at that moment that she had paid $100 in bank fees in October, 40 the month before that. Now I call bank a specific bank and I and I ream them out, get two years of fees uh, reversed. I don't want to have to do Only that. one of six possible names in Canada. And frankly, it could have been any one of them. And none of us would have actually ever doubted it. So continue. Yeah, I don't want to have to do that. I don't want to have to talk to a call center agent that might not really care, wait for 20 minutes. And we should just be able to safely and successfully navigate those complex banking systems. The more complex products are, the more profitable they are for banks. So I'm purely thinking of people that they don't want to deal with these complex spreadsheets and elaborate tools and all this manual entry. I just want people, really the the key focus of my motivation is when the people that you care about are spending time with the people that they care about, I don't want them to have this underlying agitation and stress and distraction in the background that they can't get the full enjoyment of the time with that person. That when you're spending time with your daughter, have that 100% enjoyment of that time, not that 30% of financial stress and 70% focus on, on what's happening. And that's, again, same as the advisor concept is putting them at their highest, best use instead of those distractions that those, uh, you know, things that they don't necessarily want to deal with. Well, and it's been said on this podcast and other places before that at the end of the day, you know, financial industry is nice. What's better is a system that's not predatory, right? At the end of the day, if the system puts a tremendous amount of onus on the individual as to not get hosed or screwed, then that is a predatory system. And uh, it would just be nice if we just stopped doing that because frankly, unfortunately, there's no incentive for financial institutions to go around designing systems that put you in lower cost alternatives automatically based off of what fits best for you. There's quite literally zero incentive. Again, they're incentivized the other way. Uh, let's keep you in there as long as humanly possible. But frankly, it's, you know, unfortunately, a lot of what we do in this industry is solutions for problems that shouldn't exist. And it's going to be a while before that disappears. Yeah. And just one more thing on the open banking. You mentioned it during that that podcast that I did listen to yesterday. I really want to be able to, what was that quote you said about the, the flowers blooming? Thousand flowers bloom? Well, it's you know, the entire argument. Yeah. It's the entire argument behind ecosystems. So a lot of times the argument will be like, well, why do you need it for? Like, what, like, what are you really going to accomplish with it? And they try to judge based off that one instance or use case or whatever it might be, but it's nonsense. What you're doing with open banking is the same thing you what you're doing when you create any kind of platform, like in the, uh, the iPhone is a perfect example. Do you think Steve Jobs or any of them when they created the iPhone could have, could have envisioned what would have become and all the use cases and all of the, all the possible things. There is no one conversation between two people or a group of people that can, that can confine the entire limits of human imagination for the entire duration of existence. And the simple fact that, that you know, we get these narrow framings of, well, why is it important? Well, why is that thing important? Who cares? It is a consumer's data. It should be their right to access it. And it should be their right to send it wherever they want to with their own freaking rules. And at the end of the day, there are endless use cases we have yet to dream up. And if it's one of these things, if you just open it up, a thousand flowers will bloom, but you need to create the fertile soil. And without that data, there is no fertility. And that's what I'm frustrated about is I feel like I'm trying to be really do something amazing within a very restricted system. And I want to get to that point of open banking where now my team can really start to dream up these beautiful things that they didn't even know that they would be able to conceive, let alone bring into fruition. That's it. The, all the world's, some of the most impactful inventions of all time were things that people didn't even realize there was a use case for until they had a problem and said, well, what if I did it this way? And suddenly, oh my goodness, there's an entire business. The post-it note alone, right? Indeed. Like, Indeed. That's Indeed. it. It was because a guy hated paper falling out of his Bible in church. Like that was it. <laughs> Is that a real, is that the real, that is it. They developed, oh, wow. they developed a type of glue that was not overly strong and they couldn't figure out a use for it. And the guy at 3M opened up his handbook and papered the sheets that were bookmarking and fell out and 
thought this might work quite well. And that's where it came from. Excellent. Sheldon, thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. And for those of you in Canada looking to deepen uh, your, your client relationships, check out the Pocket Finance website. You are pre-launch starting to get into the actual uh, into actual production now. So um, this will basically be an option for many very, very, very shortly. Yeah, we're going to be launching very early April. We've got a wait list both for advisors to get uh, great discounts and a wait list for consumers. If you check it out at pocketfinance.com, you can sign up there. Thank you again. Thanks a lot, Jason. And thank you all for joining us for this episode of Fintech Impact. As always, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever it is you get your podcast. And until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.